Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. It's good to be here with my family. I love this church. And we're in the middle of a series right now called A Light Has Dawned. We're looking at the book of Isaiah. We're in our second week, and we're looking at some prophecies that point us to the coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus in our world. And I want to start off just by asking you to reflect for a moment. I wonder if you've ever experienced a reality check, or just recently have you experienced a reality check? Um, I certainly did a few months back. I had a minor operation at the uh, Prince Charles Hospital. And as I came out of the anesthetic, I was talking to the nurse. She was checking my vitals and just getting to know me a bit. And I uh, told her I'd been married for a couple of years and da-da-da-da-da. And then she took me into the waiting room and gave me some sandwiches. And on the TV, I was watching this show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And as I was watching this, I kept thinking, answer the question A, and it would light up green. Answer to the next question, oh, it was D, and it would light up green. And I started to look around at people. I was like, are you guys seeing what I'm, this is so easy. What's wrong with these people in the show? I, w- I would be a millionaire if I was there right now. And then I went out to the car park and my lovely wife picked me up and I got in there and I was just so excited to tell her about how many of these answers I was getting right and we have to figure out how to get me on the show and that sort of thing. And she's just laughing at me. And then I tell her, I've I've met this nurse and we've been married for a couple of years. I told her that and she said, Ben, just hang on a second. We've been married for five years. (laughs) I don't know where the other three years went, but obviously the anesthetic put me in a bit of a false reality. I wasn't really seeing things clearly, but I didn't realize. Now, reality checks are good for us. You know, that reality check prevented me from making myself a national embarrassment on who wants to be a millionaire, being overconfident and just getting the first question. How long have you been married for? A, one year. B, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) Would have probably gotten that one wrong. But also, more seriously, you know, if I tried to drive the car home that day, I probably would have hurt someone or myself. I wasn't in reality. I needed a reality check. It was good for me. And this is what Isaiah chapter 2 is for God's people. It is one big reality check. You see, they're living in a false reality as this prophecy comes to them. And it wasn't because they were under anesthetic. It was because... They'd stopped learning from God. They'd stopped hungering after God and His Word and following Him. And and they'd had adopted the lifestyle and the values and the wisdom of the nations around them. I mean, everybody else was living like this. It, It felt right, so what was wrong with it? But Isaiah comes along and delivers this message that they were living in a false reality and they needed to come back to true reality. Now, if you're a Christian, are you sure you are living in God's reality? You know, day by day, are you living as the person God says you are, a beloved child of God? Are you living in light of a future he has promised you in Jesus? Or are you so swamped by all the messages of the media and all the influences of our world that your reality isn't really shaped by God at all? Maybe if you're honest, your life doesn't look that different to someone else who doesn't have faith. If you're not a Christian, I hope this passage and especially the life of Jesus shows you that God defines reality and that it's not a reality to avoid, it's a reality you were made for. 
It's a reality where all the puzzle pieces and all the longings come together and finally make sense. In Isaiah chapter two, God's people are given three reality checks. It's the people of Judah he's speaking to. And as he corrects them, I just want us church to test our own hearts and to ask whether we've bought into the same things they have. Isaiah's first reality check is found in verses one to five. And this is what he says to Judah. He says, you're living in light of the wrong future. You're living in light of the wrong future. So this prophecy, it has a few different levels to it, but ultimately it is looking forward to a time at the end of human history as we know it, when all of God's promises are fulfilled. So it says in verse two, in the last day. So it's located in those final days of history. And it's an amazing, amazing, beautiful, glorious picture of the future. In verse two, it says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. So the temple in Jerusalem was located on a, on a hill there. And lots of shrines and temples were built on hills and mountains, at least in that area of the world in that time. And even there was a, a prophecy in Babylon that their temple would be the highest and would be raised up above all the other temples around them. So it's this idea that the God of Israel, his name is Yahweh in the Old Testament, the God of Israel will be exalted as the one true God and everyone will see it, everyone will acknowledge it. And we see in verse three that people aren't complaining, they're actually excited. It says, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. They're excited. They're calling upon one another to go up, to see Yahweh, to learn from him, to hear his word, to hear about how life works. And then in verse four, there's this beautiful picture of peace established over the earth. You know, in our culture, sometimes though I think the way we believe peace will be accomplished is by tolerating one another. But here, in God's word, it says peace will be accomplished when not you and I are judging one another, but the capital J judge comes and he settles all disputes for many peoples. He judges between nations. And no one will be feeling that injustice has happened. Justice will have been done fully and completely and correctly. And it brings about peace. People, are, it says in verse four, that they're beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They're beating their swords into things they can use to till the land and to make the land beautiful. And they're cutting vines with their spears and making wine to drink. It's a, it's a land, it's a, it's a plentiful, beautiful place of peace. You know, I think about in our world, imagine what this would look like. Imagine North Korea laying down their nuclear arms or in the Middle East, just if that would become a place of peace and prosperity. It's a beautiful vision for the future that God is giving to Judah. And God is an outsider, but he's right at the very center of it. He's the one who's securing this future for his people. And the reason that it's a reality check for the people of Judah is, an, is several, there's several reasons. One of them, if you look at those first five verses, you'll notice that in this future, the people of Judah aren't explicitly involved at all. So there's no mention of the priests teaching people. There's no mention of people of Judah escorting people to the temple. It just talks about 
the fact that God will do this, that God will teach people, that God will judge these disputes. It's kind of like Isaiah's just leaving this future open, you know? Judah's probably thinking, are we gonna be there? Are we not? And Isaiah's calling them to repent so that they can be part of this future. The second thing is more obvious. Verse six, it says that Judah is full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. So they're not living as God's people. They're not excited about what Yahweh is teaching them from the temple. They're they're learning from the nations around them. They're they're following their ways instead. So this obviously isn't their reality. This is a bit of a, a bit of a, 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 a bit of a confrontation. It's a reality check for them. Isaiah is calling them to live in light of God's future. To live in light of God's future. It's kind of like he's saying, what kind of future are you guys living for? Look at what you could be a part of. Stop trying to be like the world. That's not who you are. You've been given an amazing identity by God. You've been promised a glorious future by God. Live in light of that future. Believe it and be the light in this world that God made you to be. Don't miss out on the future glory of God's people. And he says in verse five, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of Yahweh, of the Lord. God's people were living in light of the wrong future. And I wonder, you know, for you this morning, what future is shaping you? Because it does shape us. It does change the way we live today. What is on the forefront of your mind? What are you excited about in the future? What are you investing towards? What are you hoping for? You know, maybe if you're honest, you'd say, you're thinking a lot more about the next five or 10 years. Maybe for you, it's about getting a good ATAR score or a good GPA so that you can get that dream job or earn a bunch of money. Maybe for you, it's about finding the, the, the dream partner, getting a house, having children, settling down. And that's really what you are longing for and that's really what's driving you on a day-by-day basis. Or maybe for you, it's getting the children out of the house, getting a caravan, dyeing your hair gray and calling yourself a gray nomad. Or or you just get to the age where that happens naturally. None of these things are bad things in and of themselves. I mean, you can donate a caravan to me any day. I'll happily receive it. But if they are the primary hopes that you have for your future, if you really look at your heart and you think that's where your heart really is, that's what you're hoping for, that's what you're investing for, that's everything for you, then it's going to shape you. And it's not going to shape you the way God intends. They are not as certain or as glorious, anywhere near as glorious as the future God has promised you in Christ. What future are you looking towards? If we will live for God's future, it will make us look different at times, Sometimes we'll be doing weird things like giving away money instead of putting it towards something for ourselves. The world probably won't be impressed by us. They might think we're wasting our time on a fairy tale religion. But none of that matters because one day some of these people will realize the worth of God. They will stream into his temple, the church, to know him, to be taught by him, And the question is, will we live in light of that glorious future 
Or will we miss out because we put all our faith and energy into the shallow glories of our immediate future? This is Judah's first reality check. He said to them, you're living in light of the wrong future. The second reality check comes in verses six to nine. And Isaiah says, your fullness will end up empty. Your fullness will end up empty. So in verses six to nine, if you got your Bibles open or your apps open, you'll notice that the word full gets repeated again and again. It's what ties this, this section together. Isaiah points out that Judah had tried to fill the God-shaped emptiness of their lives with so many other things. They tried to make God unnecessary so that he could exist as a religious add-on, but not as someone they worshipped and relied upon. In verse 6, it says that they tried to manipulate God through superstitions and hunches about how he worked, rather than simply trusting what he said about himself and his word. He wants his people to trust them trust him. Verse 7, it says that Judah tried to avoid God's help by amassing wealth and power. And verse 8, it says they tried to avoid God's claim on their lives by creating their own gods of choosing. And you know, we still do the same things today. We try to manipulate God through bargaining with him. You know, it's not enough for us to believe that he is gracious, that he is full of love, that he wants to give. Sometimes we just think we've just got to do something to secure that. Sometimes we're pursuing peace and security by filling up our bank account rather than relying on God. Or maybe we just don't actually believe that God will lead us into the joy that we long for, will lead us into the life that we long for. And we think, no, we've got to create our own idols to get there. I'm going to worship money or I'm going to worship sex or I'm going to worship beauty. We still do these sorts of things today. And the scary thing is that most of the time we don't even realize we're doing them because the power of sin blinds us in our lives. This is part of the reason why Isaiah makes such a confronting statement at the end of this section. In verse 9, he says, So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Isaiah asks God to do that. He says, Do not forgive them. Now, maybe that's shocking to you. It was to me when I first read it. You know, isn't God a God of love and grace? Like, why is Isaiah talking like this? Is he a bit off key here? Well, the thing is, Isaiah is not saying never forgive them. That wouldn't make sense. The whole reason he's preaching this message that God saves sinners is because they want, he wants the people to return to God. He wants them to know God. He wants them to repent and to receive forgiveness. But what he's saying is this. He's saying to God, don't relent this time. I know you are compassionate and merciful. And you give second chances. But this time, meet out your judgment. Don't turn back from judging Judah. Now, why would Isaiah say this? He's not being spiteful or hateful. He says this because he knows they need to need God again. He knows they need to need God. But their idols and the power and wealth they've amassed and their privilege are numbing them to their need 
Bray Ortland says in his commentary on this book, he says, it's not that God doesn't love them anymore, but if any generation of his people along the way becomes full of pride, he would do them no favor by visiting them with blessing. It would only reinforce their self-salvation. Their first need is to be emptied of their fullness. This is where true Christianity sometimes leads us. It will empty us of our idols and all the lesser things we fill ourselves with. It will expose our kind of self-created ways of doing things as empty. And in fact, Hebrews 12 teaches that God disciplines his children, that he disciplines those he loves. If you are a legitimate child of God, he will discipline you at times. If we're filling up on the wrong things, he will show us their emptiness And that truth is scary, but it's also comforting. The reason it's comforting is because it tells us that God is so committed to our eternal good that he will give us the remedy we need, even if it's painful for a moment. He is committed to our eternal joy. I could explain it this way. You know, the other day, my son Bo is five months old. He's teething at the moment. He was crying, he was screaming, he was in pain. And I wanted to give him some paracetamol to take the pain away, but I know that he hates his medication. He hates it. So I I took him and I thought, you know, I love this little boy. I'm going to try and help alleviate his pain. So I took him, I got the paracetamol ready. And as I'm trying to put the syringe in his mouth, he's just staring into my eyes, screaming like I am the worst human on the planet in this moment. Like I'm the most hateful father in the world. And I'm just like feeling so terrible giving paracetamol to this little baby. But I know that later on, it will be good for him. Just a little bit of a picture of what it's like when God disciplines his children. He never does it out of hate or anger. He loves them, he's committed to them, he'll give them the remedy they need. You know, church, when I think about my own life personally, there have been times where I have been stuck in destructive patterns of sin. And I couldn't always just get myself out of those patterns on my own. Even no matter how much I tried, I'd keep falling into them, but it was until God disciplined me. Sometimes it was through a Christian who would come and confront me and say, hey, this can't go on. You're hurting yourself, you're hurting others. That God would get through to my heart and that I'd find fresh power to overcome. We don't always enjoy God's discipline. Scary sometimes, painful sometimes, but it leads to joy. It leads to that peaceful fruit of righteousness the Bible talks about. And if we're legitimate children of God, He is too committed to our joy to leave us in destructive patterns. He will discipline us at times. This is what true Christianity looks like. And so I want to ask, what is your life full of? You know, maybe you're walking well with God at the moment. Maybe you're not in a place where God needs to discipline you or correct your path. But we can all ask, what is our life full of? Israel was full of the wrong things. Judah was full of the wrong things. Because if our life is not full of God, it will be emptied. So are you full of self-dependence? 
Are you full of plans to, to get rich? Are you full of ideas and desires that you know don't align with God's word and you're pursuing them on a day-by-day basis? These things will leave us empty in the end or God will empty us of them himself because he loves you and he wants to give you a future that is far better than you could ever concoct or construct or dream up for yourself. In Isaiah's second reality check, he exposes what Judah is full of and he tells them the news they don't want but need. Tells them that their fullness will end up empty. In the third and final reality check, Isaiah says to Judah, your false reality cannot stand. It won't be able to stand forever when true reality is revealed. Now, there are a few few things that tie this section, verses 10 to 22, together. The first is that Isaiah keeps speaking about a day, a day where the Lord will make his presence known on the earth, verses 11, 12, 17, and 20. And there's a phrase that keeps getting repeated. It's this, the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. You see, this section is about a future day where God will tear open the sky, step into our world in majesty and splendor, and every person who is bought into the false reality of human power and self-sufficiency will be terrified. They'll see God as he really is, and they'll think, oh my goodness, what have I been doing with my life? What have I been building for myself? What have I been worshiping? All of our trust in military power, all of our awe for human brilliance, all of our pride in our own accomplishments will be exposed as empty illusions and false realities. In verse 11, Isaiah says, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In that day, God will step in and those who have ignored, downgraded him and rejected him will suddenly realize how foolish they were when they see God as he really is. You know, God has already partially fulfilled this day of his coming. We started the Advent season as a church and like I said earlier, that word means coming. So in the Advent season, we reflect on God coming into the world in the person of Jesus. Now, on the surface, when you think about the coming of Jesus, it doesn't sound a lot like Isaiah 2. You know, the the human pride being brought low, people fleeing to caves and the rocks and to holes in the ground and terror. I mean, hardly anyone knew about his birth at the time. In the world's eyes, it would have been less than impressive. He was born into a poor family. His cot was an animal's feeding tray. He was a king, but not like King Herod or Caesar. He didn't own a palace. He didn't even own a home. He had a ragtag band of followers of people who weren't that impressive themselves. And Isaiah 53 verse 2 even prophesied that he would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So how on earth did a person like Jesus humble the arrogant? How did God's first advent in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago result in the humbling of people and the exaltation of himself? 
Well, the answer is this. God chose to give us the solution we need in precisely the opposite way we tend to pursue it. God gave us the solution we need in precisely the opposite way we tend to pursue it. You see, at Christmas, at the end of the Advent season, we remember that God chose to enter human history as a humble, helpless child. And 30 years later, God intentionally chose to accomplish victory through what looked like total and utter defeat at the cross. Because by doing it in this way, by achieving salvation in this way, he turns everything we think upside down. So that we're left scratching our heads and thinking the only way salvation and success and victory could be accomplished through a crucified Messiah is if the wisdom and the power of God were involved. It puts to shame our human wisdom, our amassing of wealth, our attempts to outmanipulate one another, outmaneuver one another. God came as a helpless child and died on a Roman cross and rose again. And it was in this way that he accomplished salvation for humanity. You see, at the cross, Jesus went through that day in Isaiah 2, the day of the Lord. He went through our judgment. Jesus, the one who should have been exalted to the highest place, took the lowest place and humbled himself to a criminal's execution. The sinless one took the place of sinners. The day of the Lord in Isaiah 2 sounds fearsome, and it is. In Jesus' second advent, in his second coming, he will not come to save, but to do justice. He's patiently waiting for people to turn to him in this age, but then he will come to do justice. But his second coming need not terrify us because it is not a day for everyone we are invited to escape it through Jesus it is a day rather verse 12 says that the Lord has in store for all the proud and lofty for all that is exalted it's for those who trust in themselves who take pride in themselves or their own achievement own intelligence own wisdom own spirituality rather than trusting in Jesus, humbly learning from his word, following him like a little child. If we believe that Jesus has gone through our judgment day, we will not fear the second advent and we will not be sucked in by the false realities the world offers us because a crucified Messiah puts to shame our awe for for human power and pomp. Isaiah says to Judah and to us, your false reality just can't stand. And the thing is, God's reality is too glorious for us to accept false realities. God's reality is too beautiful and amazing and glorious for us to miss out because we've been pursuing false realities. The glorious future that Isaiah talks about in verses one to five, that vision It gets picked up again at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. But in this vision, it's been transformed. The city now represents God's people. And there's no need for a temple in this vision. Let me read for you what a prophet 700 years after Isaiah wrote. He saw this. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city, that's the people of God, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. They'll be streaming in, they'll be excited. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. If your faith is in Jesus, that's your future. Don't forget who you are. Don't lose sight of what God has promised you because the truth is God's reality is too glorious for us to accept false realities. I'd love to pray with you, church. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you humbly as your people this morning. And this is a confronting passage, Lord. But we thank you that your heart is good, that it beats with love, that you are so committed to our good that you are willing to do the difficult work of confronting us when we need that. We thank you that you are committed to leading us into the green pastures and still waters of life with Jesus. We thank you that you have set aside a glorious future where there will be peace among all people. We'll be excited to know you. We will see your majesty and your beauty and we'll be captivated by it. And Lord, we pray that we can start living in light of that future now. We pray that you would captivate our hearts now with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we give ourselves to you as your people. Help us to walk in your reality, to live as a light to the nations. And we pray this for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name, amen.